Whom do you seek? Another way to ask the question is, who are you looking for? And for some of us, it's not a who, but rather a what. What are you looking for? It's one of those existential questions wrapped up in humanity's quest for the meaning of life, but it's also the question that John has been asking throughout the course of this entire gospel. In John 1, Jesus asked this question to one of his first followers, and then in John 18, he asked this same question to those who came to arrest him. Whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? But the question is also embedded in the stories and interactions that Jesus had throughout the course of his ministry. And as we looked at last Sunday, it was the question being posed to the crowds as they waved their palm branches, calling for revolution, for the defeat of Rome, for the restoration of Israel. It's also the question being asked of us. What sort of God have we conjured up? And how have we shaped and fashioned Jesus to resemble him? This morning, I want to walk us through John's account of the resurrection. And my hope is that as we do that, what will emerge from this text is the very image of the invisible God, the resurrected king, and how the path he took to glory is what shapes the path we have been called to walk. For as the Father sent Christ, even so he is sending us. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 20, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning. It's also going to be up on the screen behind me. It says this, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. What's going on here? Mary Magdalene was a woman who, if if you've been around the Bible at all, you would know that she was possessed by seven demons at one point in her life. She was also a woman whom Jesus healed. And while there isn't a ton written about her in the gospel accounts, she had become a close friend to Jesus. And we know this because... She stood with Jesus' mother and an aunt beside the cross as he was being crucified. It says that these events happened on the first day of the week. And before we pick that apart, I want to spend a few more minutes talking about Mary Magdalene. The text says that she came to the tomb early. That she came while it was still dark. The other accounts suggest that she had some additional women with her, but John zooms in on Mary. He wants us to feel what she's feeling. It's early in the morning, before the sun had even come up. She is at the tomb. She is there. Why? She wants to be near her Lord. She wants to be near this man whom healed her, this man whom she loved with all of her heart. Mary wants nothing more than to be near her friend, to be near her Lord. One commentator says it like this, and I have a slide for it. Mary Magdalene wants and wills to be as near to Jesus as she can possibly be. This passion to be near Jesus we can call Magdalenic faith. I love that phrase. It's a made-up word, but I love it. The kind of abiding, sticking, hanging in there, making one's home with faith that Jesus sought in his teaching more than he sought any other single commitment. 
John wants us to sit with Mary in her pain, to experience and feel it, but he also wants to show us what devotion looks like. Mary loved Jesus, and her heart is torn to pieces right now. She is grasping at any opportunity to be near to him. This is what love is, though, right? We've experienced this love where where the person who has captured our affections, we want nothing more than to be as close to them as possible. And when that individual passes from this life, we are devastated, we are broken, and we want nothing more than to be with them. We've experienced this. Let's go back, though, and look at that first time marker for a minute. On the first day of the week, it says, It's a reference to Sunday, but John writes so that we might dig beneath the surface. John's always doing that. He's always has some sort of meaning beneath the surface, some sort of double meaning that he's working with. If you remember, John's gospel begins by drawing our attention back to the dawning of creation when he utters the words, in the beginning, in the beginning. And now, on this first day of the week, he's hinting at another beginning. A new beginning. And we're supposed to be reminded of, of that first day of the week of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And he's saying, there's a new creation at work here. But even in the darkness... Nope, that's not where I'm at. Mary doesn't understand. She doesn't get it yet. Notice it says it was still dark. Again, right? What does John like to do? He likes to use these images, these words to kind of capture meaning. It's dark out. Mary doesn't yet understand what's going on. But even in the darkness, she's able to see that the stone had been taken away from the tone. She sees the obvious thing. And then the text says that she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This is John, most likely. She then, in what clearly reads as panic, tells them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Now, now let's paint a picture here, right? Mary is probably out of breath at this point. She's probably fumbling through her words. I imagine she's scared, and maybe she's even crying at this point. Verses 1 and 2 are filled with anxiety, tension, fear text continues. Verses 3 through 4. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The text says that Peter went out with the other disciple. It also says that both of them were running. Now, this part is just funny. Notice that it says, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, it looks like John is letting the world know that he is either faster than Peter or that he cares more than Peter. Some sort of subtle brag on the part of the beloved disciple, but but it's more likely a statement of fact. John was younger than Peter. The point is that both wanted to know what was going on. What John is communicating in this instance is the urgency of the situation. This isn't a brag. John's not a bragger. He's been trained by Jesus. This is years after the resurrection. He's not sitting there saying, I'm better than this guy. That can't be what it is. That just goes against the entire character of the gospel. But just to give a little bit of context, just a few days prior, Peter denied Jesus three times. I can't imagine what he's feeling right now. 
can't imagine what's going through his mind, what's in his heart, as he remembers what he did in denying his Lord three times. But at the same time, John was with Jesus as he was getting crucified. He was by his side. Now, the beauty of knowing these two facts is that it doesn't change how Jesus approaches those of us who fumble the ball. Jesus has his moment with Peter. I would encourage you to read about it in John chapter 21. Peter receives the grace of God. His sins are forgiven. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? See, that's what's so beautiful about this picture that we're, we're seeing unfold before his eyes. Peter was the worst. Like, he wasn't that great. Like, we know this. It's obvious in everything that's written in the Gospels. Man, he was zealous. He was excited. But, but at the time when he was needed most, he denies Jesus three times. Jesus receives him back. Let's keep reading, verses 5 through 10. Deanna, can you grab me a tissue? Oh, there's some behind me? There are. My apologies. Don't shake my hand. Ah, oh, happy Easter, right? It's great. Okay. Am I good? We're good? All right. All right, cool. Let's go. Verses 5 through 10. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So John gets there first, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he stays outside, right? Peter, on the other hand, when he arrives, he went into the tomb, right? That's Peter's way. He just jumps right in, and, and he also saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face, face cloth, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, the details are important, because the first thought Mary probably had and what both Peter and John were most likely thinking themselves was that the body was stolen. This is probably what's going through their minds. Why? Because grave robbing was pretty common in those days. But in seeing the linen cloths and the face cloth, cloth folded in a place by itself, they knew something else was going on. Why? Because thieves are not this particular. They're not this neat. These details matter. Now, Peter doesn't get it yet, but it says that John went in and he saw... And he believed. Now, I can't even imagine the rush of emotions filling John at this moment. Remember, he was there. He watched as they nailed Jesus to the cross. He saw the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. He received the words right from Jesus' lips to take care of his mother, and he heard the words, it is finished. After which Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And now, for John... All of it is starting to make sense. Everything is clicking. The tomb's empty. This body wasn't stolen. Everything's way too put in order. Something is going on here. He believes. Everything clicks. He understands. Not fully yet, as we're going to see in a few minutes, but he gets it. 
Now, maybe, maybe as we walk through this passage, you're remembering the moment when all of it started to make sense for you, when all of it started to click for you, when everything, the story of the crucified and risen Christ, became more than words on a page, but a historical reality that had cosmic implications. But maybe, maybe that moment is happening right now. Maybe the story of John stooping down into the tomb, seeing the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth folded up in a place by itself is stirring something in you right at this particular moment. Don't ignore that. Don't ignore that this morning, because maybe what's stirring in you is the very new beginning we've been talking about. John stooped down. He's further examining the situation. He wants to understand. This text is inviting you to do the same. Soup down, examine the evidence. Could it be that the dead has risen? Could it be that the dead has risen? And if so, does that not change everything? Does that not change everything? If a man truly walked up and got out of the grave who was dead, pierced through the side just to make sure he was dead. Does that not change everything? Let's keep reading. Verse 10 ended with the disciples going back to their homes, but verse 11 zooms back in on Mary. It says this in verse 11, if you read with me, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, what first stands out to me is that these two men left this poor woman weeping outside the tomb. I don't know if anyone caught that. All right, for those of you wondering if chivalry is dead, it died about 2,000 years ago, all right? That's that's what is jumping off the page for me. But, But more than that, it says that Mary stood weeping. One commentator suggests that her standing should be read a bit more forcefully. She, she stayed right there. In other words, she wasn't going to budge. And what is she doing? She's weeping. Now, this isn't a sniffle. She's all out crying. To get into her head a bit, she just ran to get Peter and John because she thinks that someone might have stolen the body of Jesus. They come back running to check it out, and now they went home. John might have even had a smile on his face. We don't know, but she still doesn't have the answers, and so she does what John did. She stooped to look into the tomb, but she doesn't see linen cloths. This is cool. She doesn't see linen cloths. Text says that she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This is incredible because God does something for Mary that he didn't even do for the beloved disciple. He sent his angels down to meet with her. He sent his angels down to meet with her. But she's still not getting it. It's not clicking yet. Verses 13 through 16, check it out. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking, supposing him to be the gardener? She said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. 
which means teacher. They asked her, why are you weeping? And through the tears, what we would describe as ugly crying, like that's the kind of crying we're dealing with right now, like the crying where like you're sniffling and it's like it's gross, and you're kind of like looking at the person like, you good? Like probably still breathing heavily. Bloodshot eyes, she responds, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Mary still thinks somebody stole the body. Text says that she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus, and this is where it gets fascinating. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? She thinks he's the gardener, which is just cool because, again, that's another nod to the creation story. So she asks him, hoping that he might have an idea of what happened. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. In other words, please, if you know where he is, just tell me. It's not a big deal. I'll take care of it. I got it. I just need to know where he is. Please. You're not going to get in trouble. Just tell me where he is. Then Jesus speaks. Mary. One word. One word. It's all it took was one word. Her ears perked up. She heard the voice of her Lord speaking her name as Jesus had always uttered it to her. They were close. She was at his side at the cross when he died. And she responds, still through those ugly crying tears that she was just saying, shedding Rabboni, just as she has always said it. And what most likely happens after that is that she falls to his feet, grabs hold of his legs, clinging to him, the way you might cling to your child if they were lost in a department store and you finally find them happily eating a candy bar with the security guard. That's the kind of of emotion that's filling Mary right now. She's overwhelmed. She's like, oh my goodness, you're here. You're here. I cannot fathom what has just happened. You were dead. I saw you die, Jesus. I saw them shove that spear right through your side. I saw the nails in your arms, the nails in your feet, and you're alive. And she touches him. She grabs hold of him. This isn't a spirit. She doesn't like fall through, like, like if you're watching the movie Ghosts or something and, and, and they fall through the ghost. Like, no, this, is, this person is alive in the flesh. I can't imagine what's going through her mind, what's, what her body is feeling, everything that's going on in this moment. The emotion of this passage is just teeming, overflowing. Mary has seen her Lord, and she grabs hold of him with all of her might. But Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. My cough drop. For I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers. Say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. In other words, Mary, get up. Stop holding on to me. This is a time to rejoice. I'm alive. Go, go and tell my brothers. Yes, that's right. I called them my brothers. I know that all but one of them abandoned me. And that Peter denied me three times, but they're my brothers and my father is their father and my God is their God. We got to let this sit with us for a minute. He calls them brothers. They're in the family. Their failures from just a few short days ago have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. 
Somebody in this room needs to hear this. Jesus moves toward the broken, the failures, the sinners, with love, grace, and mercy. I don't know what you've brought into this room today, what burden you've been carrying, what reason you have, why you believe Jesus would deny you entrance into his kingdom, but the crew that Jesus refers to as brothers, they abandoned and denied him at the moment he needed them most, and his response is welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Why? Because where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of whatever it is you might have done. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is come. And the question keeps ringing in our ears, whom do you seek What are you looking for? Maybe a better way to phrase it, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He cries out, come. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, come. Whatever you have done, whatever shame you might be harboring, whatever burden you might be carrying, come. Come. I will give you rest. I will give you grace. I will give you peace. Redeemer Fellowship, this is good news. This is good news. This is what he wants from us. He wants to be our brother. He wants his father to be our father. Text continues. Look at verse 19 with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. It's evening on the first day of the week. Doors are locked. The disciples were terrified. Terrified. They locked themselves away because they saw what the religious leaders did to Jesus. There's no reason to think that anyone is missing from this room other than Thomas. And so that means John is in the room, right? The one who believed at the beginning of the day. Now, I'm not here to doubt John's faith. He believed, and all of them heard the announcement from Mary Magdalene that she had seen the Lord, yet they are locked away because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're afraid that the fate of Jesus would become their own. And it's in the midst of that fear, that anxiety, while trembling under lock and key, that Jesus came and stood among them. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Redeemer, is this not something we have all experienced at some point in our lives, whether in a moment of prayer or searching the scriptures for hope during a time of deep pain or from the lips of a faithful brother or sister that in those times of despair, we are reminded that it is in those moments that Jesus is closest. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And look at what he does right after he speaks the word of peace over them. He showed them his hands and his side. I can't help but believe that in showing them his hands and his side, that he is showing them the path they're all about to embark on. But first, he is showing them what he did to secure their peace. He says, peace be with you. Why? Here's why. Here's why. Because I died for you. I took it upon myself. You don't need to carry that burden anymore. 
In other words, brothers, don't be scared. Be at peace. I have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And guess what? Look at my hands. Look at my side. It leads to life. It leads to life. Then Jesus says it again. Peace be with you. Only this time. And I imagine his hands and his side are still in full view. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. How has the Father sent me? Well, look at my hands and my side. How am I sending you? Well, look at my hands and my side. And then the text says that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus' victory over death, over sin, over the powers and authorities. He gives us that victory. We win because he won, and he asks us to follow. Jesus meets them while they are in a state of panic. They're terrified because they know, as one commentator notes, that it would be relatively easy for the Jewish leaders to pick them off if they decided to do so. And then Jesus shows up in the midst of their fear and basically tells them, that is exactly what is going to happen to you. But do not be afraid. That is exactly what's going to happen to you, but do not be afraid. I want to be honest with all of you. I don't want to die. I don't. I don't. Now, I 100% believe that when I take my last breath, I will open my eyes and I will see Jesus, but I don't want to die. I believe death is an enemy. I believe it is unnatural, something that clawed its way into God's good creation because of sin and rebellion. But as I read this passage... As I wrestle with the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Christ, what I am absolutely convinced of is that while death might still be an enemy, it does not have the last word. It does not have the last word. It just doesn't. The tomb is empty. The promise of God says this in Revelation that death will be thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, death will one day be destroyed. But what Jesus is communicating in this moment is that in the meantime, death, suffering, and self-giving love, that is the path we are called to travel as followers of Jesus. But, and this is so important, we do not travel this path alone. We do not travel this path alone. He has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. He did it on our behalf. He did it. And now he's saying, as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this life, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm right there with you, carrying you along. The text says that he breathed on them. Again, this is language lifted directly from the book of Genesis. When God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, he then tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. What is happening is that Jesus is telling them that new creation is being unleashed onto the earth. He is telling them that they are going to be born from above by the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God walking with them throughout the course of their entire lives. They will walk through the valleys, through the pain, through the suffering, but God will be by their side the entire time, empowering them, encouraging them, and ultimately receiving them into glory when they take their final breath. But Redeemer, this is what we also receive. When we throw ourselves onto Jesus in faith, this is what salvation is. His victory over death becomes our victory. 
His victory over death becomes our victory. And best of all, we get God. We get God. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We have him. Even in the midst of the most darkest of nights, we have God. He travels with us. He walks with us. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the promise. That's the good news. That in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, in crushing death, in in gaining victory over the powers and authorities over death and sin, and, and in pouring out his spirit onto the church at Pentecost, which we are a part of, we get access to God. We are folded into his family. And not only does he call his disciples brothers, he calls everyone in this room, those who have entrusted ourselves to King Jesus, brother and sister. He is our older brother and his father is our father. Why? Because he rose from the dead and he proved death to have no authority over creation anymore. Redeemer Fellowship, that's really good news. That's really good news. It's the best news, and it's true. It's true. The final verse is a message we all need to wrestle with. This morning, I preached what is called the gospel. I shared about the death of Jesus. I spoke of his resurrection. I challenged us to believe and not ignore the stirring in our hearts. We learned of the new beginning that was unleashed when Jesus stepped out of the tomb on that first day, the first day of the week. And in this final verse, we read of the forgiveness of sins. It says this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It's a really complicated verse. We're not gonna get into all the complications. But I can tell you, this verse does not mean that I have the power to forgive your sins or withhold forgiveness from you. It's not what it means. That's not really what it's getting at. But what it does mean is that you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that I have shared with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is on the table. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is entrust yourself to King Jesus and the work he did on the cross. And your sins will be forgiven and you will be adopted into the family of God. There is not a sin on God's green earth that the blood of Christ is unable to cleanse us from, except the sin of unbelief. That's what's going on in that verse. For those who say, I don't buy it, you're withholding forgiveness from yourself. You're withholding forgiveness from yourself. It is on the table on the table. Whatever it is that's preventing you, whatever it is that's saying like, no, no, it's not for me. Jesus is saying, come. It is for you. I died for you. I rose from the dead for you. Come. Come. Jesus really did die and he really was raised from the dead. New creation is here. Do you believe that? And as I said in the beginning, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, that changes everything. 
That's the point of the entire New Testament. And even Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're the most to be pitied. He says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He says, whatever, it doesn't matter if he didn't rise from the dead. But we live in a world where Jesus did rise from the dead. And so therefore, suffering, cross-bearing, and death are the means to eternal life if we entrust ourselves to Christ. If we entrust ourselves to Christ. His death paid the price for our sins. That's the true story of the world. That's what the resurrection accomplished. Receive the Holy Spirit, join the family. That's it. That's good news, Redeemer. That's all I have to say on Easter Sunday this morning. And so I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask Cheryl to come up and play as we receive the Lord's table this morning. But let's go to the Lord and um, let's pray. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that we can cry out, he is risen. Thank you so much for that, Lord God. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that's wrestling right now, Lord God, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would stop trying to make every other way a way to, to, to glory, whatever they might be looking for, Lord God. I pray that they would come. I pray anyone in here who does know you, whatever burdens they're carrying, that they would leave them at the foot of the cross, Lord God, knowing that they have been buried with you and cast as far away as the east is from the west, Lord God. We don't need to carry it anymore. Lord Jesus, we love you with all of our hearts. Thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection. It's in your name we pray. Amen.